0: Welcome to Focus on Gender, Bridging Research and Practice. I'm Sue Tallengator. This is the first episode of this series which seeks to examine ways to bring together academic researchers and gender practitioners working in the international development arena. While academic researchers generate a great deal of knowledge that would be useful to development practitioners, we seem to stay in our unique silos. This podcast is an attempt at collaboration and narrowing the gap by having both speak directly to one another. The podcast series is sponsored by the Society for Gender Professionals as well as the School for Global Inclusion and Social Development at UMass Boston. Whether you listen at work or download it to listen offline, this information is meant to spark new ways to think about the work you do in the gender and development field. Our first discussion on gender mainstreaming takes place between an academic and a gender practitioner. The academic was recorded in our studios in Boston, and the practitioner joins us from Indonesia on Skype.
1: Hello, my name is Jane Parpart, and I am an adjunct professor in the PhD program on Global Governance and Human Security at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. I'm also emeritus professor at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada, and associated with the University of Ottawa, and Carleton Universities in Ottawa, Canada. My latest book is Rethinking Silence, Voice, and Agency in Contested Gendered Terrains, published by Routledge Press. It seeks to enlarge and deepen our understanding of the power and complexity of silence in a world that tends to see silence as an absence rather than power.
2: My name is Nina. Uh well, my full name is Marisna Yuliyanti. It's a bit long. Currently, I'm doing gender mainstreaming in water resource facility program in, in mm-hmm. Timor Leste, mm-hmm. our neighbor. I'm so eager to talk to you today. I've read through your articles. I think they are very resourceful and it gave me a lot of insights. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I can't wait to get more insights from you on a lot of different topics in gender today.
0: My goodness.
2: Well,
1: <laughs> I'm <laughs> looking forward to learning from you too. You know, I think it's so <laughs> it's, so, it's so we all have so much to learn from each other. Yeah, because you have such an impressive wealth of experience in the field, and I think sometimes academics can get. Too much in their heads and not enough in the field, and I think that's why I was so delighted that I'd be talking to you because of the five years that I came and went in Indonesia and came to have so much respect. For the work that was being done in the universities, but also by the development experts. And I realized that we all have lots to learn from each other. You know, I, I learned so much from those five years, but I'm, I'm interested. You have looked at my piece on, it's a critical piece on gender mainstreaming where I'm saying that I think it's very important to mainstream women, but we also have to do more than the body count. You know, it's, it's so easy to just try to get the right number of women and the right women into male-dominated institutions. And obviously that's terribly important first step. And sometimes there's a tendency to pay more attention to the numbers. You know, how many women are where... And if there are more, it's always better. But it seems Uh, to me there's another set of questions, and I think you probably have more experience than I do, with the questions of, okay, when women get into positions, say in, in government or in any institution or in a development project, Are there any forces that are working against them? Are there ways in which they find themselves present but not always being listened to? What are your thoughts on that? Because it seems to me that it's people in the field like yourself who are actually on the ground experiencing this that have the most to tell us about how how effective women are able to be when they move into sort of male-dominated, historically male-dominated institutions.
2: Yeah. About the headcount, it's always headcounts. Development practitioners, a lot of development organizations, it's, it's pretty normal. Usually projects are funded by external donors. Right. And donors would decide, you know, um, we will, we just want to do this. We just want to, um, you know, measure how many women are there, for example. Hmm. If, whether or not women who are there are actually, you know, yeah. being able to actively and meaningfully participate in these activities. Resistance is real.
1: <laughs> yeah, and was the resistance yeah. from women as well as men?
2: Um For, for me, the, the first resistance came from the development experts.
3: Ah, okay. Yeah,
2: before we yeah. go to the community even. Like, yeah. they don't understand why we have to do this. It's always like, you know, gender experts versus the other project teams.
1: Oh, and it's, and it's, interesting! And it's
2: quite hard, yeah.
1: Are the gender um, experts university people, or are they working in the government development agencies, or where? Where is their background?
2: It yeah, some of them uh, are from the university, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. majority of the gender experts are from the development. Okay. okay, just like you mentioned in one of your articles about collaborations with between academics and CDRs, community-based mm-hmm. researchers. Yeah.
1: Yeah, what you're saying is very similar to some of the things that I've been worrying about. When these changes get made in the field, that there are kind of resistances that are very hard to see.
2: I mean, like, if the resistance came from the community, I think it's pretty normal. It's like, we're expecting this, like, because Mm -hmm. we're assuming that there will be a lot of gender inequalities and gender gaps in the community. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. resistance will be pretty much expected. But then I did not expect this to come from the project team itself, with the understanding that people who are involved in development should know yeah. that gender equality is important, should understand what gender mainstreaming yeah. is all about, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was double resistance, does it make any sense?
1: Yes, <laughs> so, no, absolutely. Yeah. Did you try to do anything to see if you could change that? Well, my first attempt was to try to feed them with
2: data. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I think that's how uh, the roles of academic really play play roles. Because when we supply them with, you know, scientific data, mm-hmm. evidence that gender inequalities do affect sustainability of the project. Mm -hmm. do impact how the community will be able to benefit from the project. They slowly begin to see, ah, okay, so that's why we need to do this. But even so, it's really hard to get into that. Even in the process, it's really hard to make them realize that this is important. In the end, sometimes I use the donor card, like, uh, okay, you don't want to do this, but then the donor was from the US government at that time, so, but the US government wants to be gender mainstreaming mm-hmm. fully based. So if you don't do this, then you won't get the money. <laughs> sometimes <laughs>
1: That probably I concentrated play. people's minds. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> money. Yeah. I, I, sometimes I play that card, but, for me, personally, it's kind of sad. Gender equality, gender mainstreaming is always misunderstood that way.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And gender experts on the field are always, we always have to do this, always have to do the convincing, you know? Mm-hmm. It shouldn't need convincing anymore. Like, it's mm-hmm. 2019 already. Then, yeah, that's...
1: <laughs> yes. But it sounds like you have to not only convince some of the people involved in the project, but also maybe people in the development world. Yes. You know, people who think development is about more economic kind of things and not social. um, Yeah. Who are, you know, technical people and are doing important work, but it's different.
2: Yeah. They tend to think that gender is always the sideline of the project. They, They don't necessarily think that gender inequalities, gender gap, gender-based dis- discrimination, for example, will affect the implementation of the project and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. that's why they think it's a totally standalone issue and that they don't have to deal with this right now. It's usually less prioritized compared to the technical issues.
3: Yes. Do you
2: have any experiences maybe one Oh, very similar
1: this? like that. Very yeah. yeah, very. I think that... Uh, So many development experts are actually largely male and they're very technical, you know, they're like in agriculture or they're in trade or they're, you know, and they're very economically driven and they don't think about gender. They just sort of assume that that's just sort of natural Uh, And, uh, and, but I think the The problem that is so worrisome is that almost all societies, in fact, no matter how much they say they're enlightened, still there's a big difference between opportunities for women and opportunities for men. And so the men, if women start getting more opportunities, some men are going to have fewer opportunities. So, you know, it's something that we probably don't pay enough attention to that how can we encourage men to see that if their partners, their wives are working, that maybe that will be better for, for the household and better for everybody, but then they may have to do a lot more child care. And, hmm. and social change doesn't happen quickly, you know. And in so many societies around the world, the sexual yeah. division of labor has been very established. For a long, long time. Uh-huh. So you're kind of walking in and saying, I want to change the world that you grew uh-huh. up in and the world you think is normal. And uh-huh. if you tell the people who have more power that they need to share their power, you know, it's hard for us who feel like we're doing a justice issue, which we are, to, uh-huh. to think about how the people feel who feel they're losing power. You know, the men that feel like if the women come up, then they'll go down. It's hard to convince people that it can be good for everybody. And certainly in so many societies around the world, there's such great resistance to any kind of change in the position of women.
2: Never had an opportunity to work with gender academics. Actually, mm-hmm. I've always been interested in doing research. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's that's one of the issue for us practitioners. Uh, we conduct gender assessment, yeah, mm-hmm. gender baseline. You know, to, to yeah. collect data about women's situations in the field. But sometimes because we don't call ourselves researcher we're not affiliated to an educational right. institution right. there's not enough platforms for academics and um gender practitioners to actually um, you know exchange information maybe mm-hmm. uh discuss mm-hmm. um sharing and for us I don't think there's a lot of opportunities to conduct research as well. Usually if I come across any open call for research on gender and women's empowerment, usually it's only for people who are affiliated to a certain institution and I'm not. So there's not a lot of opportunities, I guess.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and that is so... Such a terrible situation because it means that the people like yourself who are, who are out in the field, you're, you're the ones that really has a feel for what's going on. And you should play a key role in the analysis of how you understand that. But I, it is true. A lot of times academics can look at reports without even knowing anything about the person that wrote them or the team that wrote them. And it would be so helpful if there were more interchange. And I think it's a great weakness. I, I think that part of the problem is that when you're in development, that's an institution. It's in the government It's uh, or in an NGO world. And those worlds have their own... Rules about, you know, what's important, what's not and things like that. And then you, the academics, of course, are busy trying to publish and get their careers moving by getting grants and doing things. And so it's, it's a shame because it seems to me that it would be much more productive if we could have people with field experience working with people who have more theory and learning from each other. I've learned so much from development practitioners uh, who who know so much more than I do about the nitty gritty of what's going on.
2: But would you agree that there's there's not a lot of platform and opportunities for practitioners and yeah. um, academics to work together?
1: Yes, I think this is it's way too rare, and I think you know it, it would maybe be a good thing for you to discuss with. The authorities you're working with saying, you know, wouldn't it be useful to bring someone in to spend a few weeks and give some seminars and meet with students in small groups, you know, and everyone would gain from that. I think there need to be academics who are involved in development who support local practitioners in a call for more integrated discussions and sharing because everybody would learn from that. I think anything that increases communication and makes people feel that they know each other and they understand each other and they're learning from each other, then that's a good thing. It's Because the danger is that we always slip back into being basically in our own institutions. And if we're trying to cross from the university world into the development world, which those of us that have been in both development and universities, even if we're more in universities than development and you would be more in development than in universities but still there needs to be more effort put into bringing connections together that help us to to learn from each other I think that's very important, but it is easy to get caught up in whatever it is that you're doing, you know, that when you're in a project or if you're teaching classes or I think it's important for us to think, try to think about how to set up ways to have things like this exchange happen, you know, like where we can actually talk, learn something about our common, uh, lives and things about differences and commonalities and it's so wonderful because I feel I feel like I know you now much better so much better and and you know <laughs> it's hard for someone in the development side to connect with the academic and it's hard for the academics to connect with the development because both groups are having to to think about their main home and how they're surviving and managing in that as well as how can we connect and learn from each other? Yeah.
2: For, for me, I think I try, although I should try more. But, you know, um, aside from if, if there's no specific project that would involve uh, both sides, I don't think there has been any link built between the two. Mm-hmm. I think if the academic has certain development issues, mm-hmm. they could also involve us and yeah. reach out to us. Yeah, but at least to um share experiences uh-huh. because practitioners are the ones who are out there on the field and are talking and engaging with the community. Right. Maybe before the researchers, yeah. before the academics, would go out there and collect data, they would talk to us, and we could formulate. A better planning, maybe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and for us too. I think in my experiences, developing a research plan is not easy. Right. So for me, I think uh, for practitioners as well, we, we need to reach out as well to the academics to get yeah. more insights on how to do a, a good research.
1: I think it might be a, a useful to try to set up, you know, see if you could find a few people in academe as well as some practitioners. And if they could get together in a small meeting and sort of just talk about how can we make more cooperation work, it's terribly important. This is such a, a wonderful moment because it's too easy to stay in your own little pond, you know, and and not reach out yeah. and try to say, yeah. how can we think bigger? yeah, You know, how can yeah. we think of new ways of collaborating to build a bridge between... Mm the people in the field like yourself who are doing such important work and the people who are in academia and sometimes forget about the connection between everyday life
0: our second discussion called gender 101 is also on the topic of gender mainstreaming between two gender practitioners. One is based in Washington, D.C., in the United States, and the other is calling in from Kigali, Rwanda, on the African continent.
4: Hi, everyone. My name is Alice Bamsime. I am a gender expert, and currently, uh, actually, for the last almost 16 years, I've been in this field, and I've been back and forth doing full-time consultancy and also at some points, uh, doing full time work. Yeah, that's all about me. Hi, everyone. My name is Dina Skippa.
3: I am a gender practitioner. I've been working in international development, uh, primarily with USAID, but also with a number of other donor agencies for about 15 years. Uh, so, really excited to be here today. Maybe, Alice, we can pick up where we've always sort of left off and maybe talking about. What do you see as being the greatest challenges when we're thinking about really putting gender integration into practice? I mean, I feel like one of the greatest challenges is really getting buy-in. And whether it's for a project or if you're doing gender, you know, serving as a gender advisor within an organization, making sure that everyone is on the same page and really is bought into the idea can Ultimately, determine success or failure. Alice, what, do you, what has been your experience when you've when you've worked on on projects?
4: Yeah, thank you, Um uh, Like you said, it's a handful of people that are really um, understand this gender mainstreaming. Although some people take it for granted and think everybody can do it. But uh, if somebody is coming in the field for the very first time, Dina, it kind of can be really, really challenging. When people think they know, yet actually there's some skills gap. How do you start? You start by doing a gender analysis. So it takes a gender expert, somebody who is really an expert in the field, to do it. You find that you're coming on a project and the baseline study has already been done. (laughs) An analysis of different things has already been done, but there was nothing like a gender bit of it. So if Somebody starts by working without doing the gender analysis, they will surely meet, uh, challenges. Gina, you know what do you have to say about this? <laughs> I
3: completely agree with you, Alice. I think gender analysis is one of the most fundamental elements of a commitment to process, uh, when we're mm-hmm. addressing gender integration or gender mainstreaming, um, in, in a project. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's sort of a, a double-edged sword. I think what's great is that there's so many different examples of gender analysis. There's so many different resources out there. But at the same time, it can kind of be overwhelming. Like, where do you begin? For me, gender analysis offers a really rich opportunity to to gather data Trends, observations, perspectives, and opinions that are so critical to informing project design that I think any project that demonstrates a real and true commitment, to wanting to address gender in its its design, really should put the upfront investment to making sure that a gender analysis is done early on. I think the other thing that I oftentimes reflect on is the level of engagement with the findings and recommendations and you and i alice both know we're extremely passionate about this work we pour our heart and soul into these reports and i think figuring out the best way to communicate the findings and recommendations and that enthusiasm around it is so critical for the buy-in piece that i was talking about earlier i have found that if you don't engage with the data with the recommendations with what you've learned with other colleagues then it's hard to sort of bridge that gap with having or generating that enthusiasm <laughs> around your commitment and i think being able to facilitate dialogue on what the findings mean um, whether the recommendations are practical and feasible will will really have an influence on how much staff feel brought into the process and feel committed to driving this agenda forward right and i think it also offers Mm -hmm. an opportunity for team members to kind of reflect on their own perceptions of what gender means because at the end of the day we're we're human beings we're influenced by our own uh you know, sociocultural, you know, expectations Mm. and perspectives. What has been your experience, Alice, when you think about sort of communicating the findings? What's worked well for you in the past?
4: Yeah, thank you, Dina. Like you said, definitely when you've done a gender analysis, you, you have to communicate the findings. And for me, first of all, before I go to how I communicate the findings, is even before I do the gender analysis, I really, really treasure and put my efforts on the senior management team. So for me, my niche in here has been to work with the senior management team. Once they understand it, it's so easy to roll it out. It's so easy for them to say, "Ah, Alice, we are going to give you five days for training for staff. Or you will do three days for training and do two days in the field. So if you have the support from the senior management team, you have it all. For me, that's what I always think. Because, like uh, during the reporting time, they always uh, like put too much pressure and always hold accountable the implementing staff. How far have you gone with this? And then I always, with the senior management team, I don't forget the M and E. The M and E is the monitoring and evaluation expert on this specific project because the if the M and E is part of this, and he also understands the importance to this project. They push for it. <laughs> that's my, that's what I, I've actually used, and it has worked so well for me.
3: One of the most effective ways to really affect change in gender and social inclusion um, on a project is when you have a team that's fully bought in, fully committed, who is feels capable and prepared to identify those opportunities in real time so that gender isn't an afterthought. And I think, Alice, you and I have probably seen the pressure when it comes to the reporting time. Well, what have you done on gender? And so if it's done, <laughs> if it's if it's considered after the fact, after activities have, have moved forward, it's kind of harder to back in. And it's obviously not mm. our ideal. But if you have front-ended the time, front-ended the process to really build capacity across the team, then team members feel equipped to be reflecting on what they've learned and what they've been reading and discussing with their colleagues to identify those opportunities in real time. In terms of ensuring buy-in, you sort of have to remind colleagues and maybe project teams or organizations writ large of the requirements that they're beholden to by certain donors. Um, what, What I've been seeing is an uptick when it comes to trends in, at least with USAID, that there's been a lot more emphasis on integrating gender considerations into the overall scope of work in comparison to previous years when you saw gender as more of a sort of an add-on at the end of the scope of work. And there's been a lot of progress made. I really applaud USAID in that regard. I know a lot of other donor agencies Uh, have made a lot of advances themselves. Um, So we should all be committed to addressing gender and social inclusion considerations, because it's the right thing to do. And it's the smart thing to do. And we've heard those arguments over and over. But really holding a bit more accountability to understanding (laughs) sort of the consequences by not addressing it has an implication on obviously compliance and making sure that you're hitting all of the right requirements, but also the consequences of not addressing gender and social inclusion considerations in a project might actually impact your objectives. And I think being able to prioritize the space and time for these types of conversations with decision makers, with leaders within, uh, whether it be the project structure or even the organization, really trying to draw out some specific examples, how if a project or an organization is not addressing gender considerations. What can that mean? And it can it can mean negative consequences or outcomes with respect to the particular project or initiative. Uh, but it can also mean that you're sort of inconsistent with what has been committed and not delivering against. I don't know if that makes sense. Just I think yeah. really trying to front-end the conversation to to building in that buy-in and like you said Alice the the compliance piece is is really important but I also think encouraging organizations and teams with a bit of healthy competition can also go a long way Um, making sure that you know right now with a lot of organizations and a lot of donors um, the pressure's on and 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 gender is not something that can sort of be added on resources are being devoted To this in in greater numbers than ever before so i think long gone Mm -hmm. are the days that you can sort of just get past it and check the box
4: yeah you're right now when you talk about uh, of resources i remember back in 2004 when i had just started uh, my first job as a gender expert in this institute uh, academic institute it was an engineering uh, technology related uh, related institute and they used to ask me, but how do you think data is going to be mainstreamed in technology? And they went and located me in the darkest corner in the offices. And slowly by slowly, when African Development Bank came and they are like, this office is going to be empowered. We are giving them some money for two years and we are funding them. I want to tell you guys, I was brought near the Chancellor's Office because everybody was like, now we are getting money because of Ali. <laughs> so they started bringing me closer. Because of the resources, which was not the case before. That was after two good years of being frustrated. I'm like, now I think I should look for another employment somewhere where they implement and give value to gender. But wait, I said I should hang on. I am supposed to be You know, like Gina said, with this gentleman streaming, passion and enthusiasm also has to apply. And it was after two years I got this grant and people started pampering me. And people started looking after me, have calling me in meetings. But before then, during the strategic planning meeting, I was not anywhere. But when you're given this ample value and the donors, like Dina said, are really devoting efforts into this to make sure that they really drive uh, gentleman streaming, that is also a very good plus for buy-in. It's so
3: true. Yeah. I'm thinking about it as, as I'm listening to you about, you know, Absolutely, passion and enthusiasm are so important in the work that we do and across, you know, all gender practitioners. I think, you know, in line with the growing interest and demand for efforts to address gender and social inclusion meaningfully in programming has sort of upped the ante, if you will, with organizations' leadership to communicate a commitment to gender equality and and that clear commitment to including it in process. But I think if you look at those two factors, because they're so critically linked to this this theme that we're talking about in terms of buy-in, but if you're not matching that with resources, you're really not setting out to do this well. (laughs) And, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, resources can mean people but it can also mean allocated budget resources. It's ensuring that the proper attention is paid to making sure that workshops and events get the same type of attention and support in terms of logistics as as the others, Um, and earmarking enough time to making sure that opportunities are seized where gender can be integrated into those activities. So I think resources are really, really important to make sure that an approach and commitment that's echoed somewhere is matched with the appropriate resources.
4: Relationships are really, really important because if they you know mutual understanding, things won't work out. If the relationship is well-built, you always have people to run to. You always have backstops to support you. I was with Landolex for five years, and... We, I used to have somebody that I worked with this person on almost a daily basis. And we had a, a, a very good relationship working together. When I needed support, sometimes she would come and support me. There are things that she will push. Uh, but for me, maybe people are so much used to me that they sometimes won't listen to me <laughs> as such. So when she comes, she helps, she supports me. We train concurrently and we kind of really make it firm that is one important uh, of relationships the second one is at usad they also have like a gender expert so you always have people in the network to build on and to always call to come and back you up so relationships are so important because they act as backstops. Uh, i like like building relationships with other organizations through like a platform or a stakeholder's platform where you you map out some partners that are working on gender mainstreaming that you're so much aware of that are even working almost on the same thing with you and you bring them on board, be assured you will learn one or two things from these other experts and implementing organizations in the field. So, for me, relationships are so important. I want to hear from my friend Dina what she has to say about this.
3: Oh, Alice, I can't... I'm sitting over here shaking my head because I can't agree with you more on these things. You know, when I think about relationships, I am thinking about relationships from two perspectives and one that is i know very important to both you and i alice is making sure that relationships are fostered from the beginning with local women's organizations like you were mentioning in that stakeholder mapping process it's so important to cultivate those relationships with women's organizations and not just women's organizations but local organizations um at at large uh to make sure that their inputs, their considerations, and their engagement are part of the design. I think also on that piece of fostering relationships with women's organizations, to also appreciate intersectionality, to not think that because you've invited or engaged with one women's organization that they represent the views of all women. And maybe that sounds as as sort of obvious to to some folks, but I think oftentimes – Women's organizations in different countries that, that have the clout or that level of influence can sometimes not represent the full scope or, or picture. So engaging young women's organizations, you know, engaging associations or even informal groups of women who have different lived experiences uh, can I think add to that that richness that I was talking about. The other piece, mm. I think when it comes to relationships, comes down to relationships with the core staff whether it be on a project or a, an organization. Because even if you're in charge of doing a gender analysis or supporting gender mainstreaming across a project or initiative, that the relationships that you're building with staff, uh, with colleagues, are obviously going to last well into the future if it's done well.
4: Thank you, Dina. And uh, this also came to my mind. It's kind of like, you know, when we're looking at relationships, we look at the internal, the external influencing factors. I'm also looking at um, a beneficiary point of view of a a certain project. The relationship should be built in a way that I remember the model that I used. After the trainings for the beneficiaries of the project or the project partners, I got some people that I called, uh, where I get the people that I call supermodel, let's say if they are farmers, Supermodel farmers or supermodel business women and men. So, when you get those people on the ground converted and they understand that it is important to mainstream gender, even at family level, even at farm level, these are the people that you bring to train and teach others. You use role, role models. So, that relationship of like mutual uh, agreement, they are the same people. Living in the same situation is also very important. I see it as also another relationship that pushes gender mainstreaming into action.